Hello and welcome to the Investors Chronicle Companies and Markets Show. I am John Human, editor of the Investors Chronicle, joined today by Bradley Gerard. How are you doing, Bradley? I'm great, thanks, John. Good. And Mark Robinson. How are you, Mark? I'm very well, thanks, John. Good. So, it's been an exciting week on the markets. Mark has written the cover feature on the rebirth of battery technology, which we're going to talk about in a minute. But uh, lots going on in the news. We've had some uh, some sort of kind of progress on the Brexit front, which has uh, obviously attracted most of the column inches. But some big stories on the markets as well. Let's, uh, let's start with them. Sure thing. Um, I guess, I mean, one of the bigger stories of the week, not necessarily Brexit related, but is is Rolls-Royce really. I guess we should sort of touch upon that because Rolls-Royce has been fined uh, £671 million, which is split three ways between the UK, US and Brazil. Um, the largest portion is going to the UK, um, almost £498 million. Um, and the fine was basically linked to um, at bribery and corruption claims that were historic at the, at the company. Mm, there was a big documentary about it on the BBC recently. I presume it relates to to all that. Yeah, I mean, the the serious fraud office has been investigating this for a few years now, and um, I mean, Rolls Royce in their statement did say that the authorities um, highlighted how um, you know, how complicit Rolls Royce had been with the investigation, how very helpful, and um, not in any way sort of obstructing. Um, the investigation, so that they got a few sort of brownie points from that perspective, I suppose. Well, it was in um, their interest, obviously, to get a quick resolution. Well, absolutely, and the fine is obviously a, a, a big amount of money. In, in the UK's portion, is actually the largest mm. um, fine I think a UK company. Well, I guess they were banged to rights as well, so well, no, it was, no point I arguing. The corruption charges related to third-party intermediaries as well. So, I mean, it's one of these arms-length um, issues that we've seen with other companies over the last couple of years as well, which brings up the whole issue of using third-party marketing and sales sources. Yeah, one wonders how rife this is throughout the rest of the uh, aerospace and defence industry, but we can only speculate and we won't do that right now. Well, no, I mean, pharma is another sector where this has cropped up in the last uh, few months or so as well. Indeed, and in fact, we have a big big feature in the magazine this week written by uh, Thor Mohammed, who unfortunately has left the magazine now, but uh, before he left, he he, uh, left us a little gift, which is this... uh, this theory about corporate scandals and uh, what you should do as an investor when when presented with such a thing, you know, should you bail? And actually, a lot of the time, um, it really, he argues, is dependent upon how the com- company responds to, mm. to the scandal. And, and you know, and here, uh, in the case of Rolls-Royce, they've, they've kind of done it right. I think you're absolutely right. I think, I mean, the shares rallied off the back of this yesterday. So clearly, that sort of that thesis is correct. So the investors are looking at what Rolls-Royce has done. They now know an absolute figure that Rolls-Royce is going to have to pay. They can factor that into their forecast. And really, it just kind of means that now they kind of know where Rolls-Royce stands. I mean, from a trading perspective, I mean, Mark wrote the piece, there are some positive trends going on with the business. So, you know, they've got this sort of, they've got rid of this dark cloud hanging over them. And now um, anyone looking at the stock can more clearly analyse it because this, this, this problematic issue is now behind it. It's out of the way. You could also argue that this is an unavoidable symptom of um, uh, globalisation and moving into uh, countries that don't have the same uh, levels of corporate governance as, say, the UK. Mm. Although that would, that would be blaming it on the countries that Rolls-Royce is doing business in rather than Rolls-Royce itself. Well, blaming on the fact that they haven't uh, progressed as far as we have in terms mm. of corporate governance. I think you're on dangerous ground there, uh, Robbo. Um, anyway, let's, let's talk about the shares because that's what we're here to do. So, so as you say, they, they bounced off the back of this. The overhang of, uh, of this, this fine is gone. Um, what do we think of them now? 
uh, looking at the moment, I mean, up until um, up until the bribery allegations that uh, came through in the last quarter of uh, 2016, the company had been uh, had reacted quite quickly to a number of problems, cut down uh, unit costs, and we're looking to um, uh, allocate capital to the most profitable parts of the business as well. And um, I made a point in the uh, the article about their um, small-scale nuclear reactor program, which they're still trying to uh, get some clarity through on, on the government. But um, it, it's these areas of the business that uh, they didn't want a drawn-out conflab relating to uh, bribery issues when they've got these parts of the business that they're trying to uh, uh, progress uh, and they see these as, as growth areas. So if you've got this overhanging you, it's, it's obviously not good for the group, which has had uh, any number of problems over the last couple of years. We're, you know, the, the market reacted well to it and uh, we're, we're certainly uh, more... Uh, positive on the stock we were than we were this time last year. Yeah, I mean they've they've had obviously a change of management in the last couple of years. Warren East, formerly formerly of Arm, you know, and there's a lot of criticism uh, of of management uh, generally at the moment, particularly around pay and currently their attendance at Davos. Um, but you know, this looks like Warren East is making a difference here. Yeah, definitely. And, and as I say, they're moving into sort of areas beyond their core competency as well, which are seen as a higher margin and uh, with more growth potential in the years to come. Plus, there's um, there's some good news for them on the uh, civil aviation front. Uh, one of the ratings agencies, Fitch, came out the other day and said that uh, deliveries will uh, expand through uh, 2017 and through 2018 as well, which is uh, which augurs well for their top line too. And so uh, the delivery scale and um, and work rate is, is likely to pick up over the next uh, couple of years at least. Okay, good news, good news. Let's talk about bad news. Um, well, let's start with uh, Pearson. We can't ignore it. <laughs> Obviously, we used to be owned by Pearson. And I think it's fair to say that this fourth profit winning in five years or five in four either way it's pretty horrible it was its fifth in four years fifth in four so not a massive surprise that we are where we are with Pearson's day the share what was a surprise was the severity of the share price fall yeah it was stark I mean when I was looking at the um looking at Megan's piece yesterday it was down about 28 percent I don't know where it finished the day at um but yeah I mean obviously Pearson as you say uh sold the FT not too long ago is also now selling Penguin Random House, which is actually a very profitable part of the business. And um, having had a brief chat to Megan yesterday, I mean, she kind of really sees this stock as one that's, I guess I'd characterise her argument as sort of saying it's been a little bit behind the times. Like a lot of Pearson's rivals are very digitally focused now. And, so that's like Reed and uh, yeah, it called, well, still called Reed? It's called something different now, yeah, isn't it's it? Good, yeah, it's, it's got a different name now, um, which I forget. I think it's almost like an acronym. But um, And there are US, US equivalents as well, who are very, very, almost entirely um, based online. You know, they publish their journals and everything online. And, and Pearson's, Pearson's still trying to flog textbooks. Then. Well, yeah, but apparently not anymore. Part of, <laughs> a, a part of a radical, radical plan well, they're, they're moving into used textbooks now. Oh, that's right, rent, textbook rental. That's right, the ones they couldn't sell in the first place. Well, yeah, they're doing that too. So they're, they're, they're embracing this um, revolutionary online thing that apparently some people dig. And um, they're also setting up a uh, second-hand book market, which, again, there's a big company I think, called Amazon, which is quite well-known yes. for doing that. Yeah, frankly, so, I think this is the most cynical I've ever heard you. I'm, I'm, just, <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm taking it from Megan's lead, really. She, she um, gave me an extremely cynical synopsis on the shares. It doesn't look fantastic for Pearson. Well, the principal criticism of the group over the years is that they've been hiving off the most profitable 
uh, parts of the of the group. Yeah, but you say that, but um, you know there is a counter argument that that a uh, business like Pearson should uh, should in fact focus. So you know it once was a sprawling conglomerate that owned all sorts of things, including the FT, including theme parks, if I, if I remember oh, rightly, yeah. and television channels, Madame Tussauds, Madame Tussauds, and you know the, the, the focus has been tightened and tightened and tightened. And education is a kind of sensible thing to, to focus on. And actually, the the argument I heard was focusing on education is not a bad thing to do. Uh, selling off decent assets, getting a decent price for them to reinvest best in education is a good thing to do but the execution of the strategy has been utterly dismal mm. and maybe mm. maybe the focus will now mean that the execution can be honed a bit more because they're only looking in one area and maybe in 10 years time we'll be sat here sort of saying how great pearson shares are but here and now as you say it's more the the market they're targeting is not a bad one the education's not going to go away we're going to keep that but executing in that market has arguably arguably been um problematic for Pearson judging it just by yesterday's share price fall um, and it looks like it could be that that situation for a while yeah anyway dividends getting cut which uh, no one likes a dividend cut no and that will have sort of augmented the share price fall absolutely um, let's talk about more bad news before we uh, flip back to good news Premier Foods Again, looks like a company that's somewhat behind the times. Yeah, I mean, as we were discussing before we uh, went on air, sort of some of the brands are sort of um, traditional. I think. Yeah, I, I once wrote a blog back in the days of chronic investor uh, madness called Premier Food Seventies Kitchen Cupboard <laughs> because I saw a, a stock photography of their portfolio, and it was since Angel Delight and. Mr. Kipling's exceedingly good cakes. Yeah, you know, I just remember all those brands as a kid, and it's like, and they haven't really changed. Not a lot. No, there are <laughs> there are some new brands, um, but yes, they they all they have all those brands you just mentioned, as well as things like Bisto, Oxo, Bisto. Well, Bisto. I mean, that's that's a seventies brand if ever there was one. Yeah, um, but yeah, Premier Foods shares fell um, roughly fifteen percent on uh, an update yesterday, which was a profit warning. So um, the company said that. Um, their trading profit is expected to be 10% uh, lower this current financial year. A big reason for that really is, as you sort of mentioned at the very start of the podcast, is Brexit. Um, cost, effectively. So the cost of a lot of its ingredients, rather, I should say, have risen dramatically in the past year. Um, there was a note from a broker at Davy, and just picking a couple of ingredients, so sugar in sterling has risen 45% in the past 12 months. Butter up 90, 90 in sterling. Those ingredients are incredibly important, obviously, to things like ambrosia, Mr. Kipling cakes. I mean, they're going to be key ingredients and they've risen so, so much. And so obviously, if you counter input cost price rises, there are different things you can do. You can cut your own costs or you can put prices up. And it looks like Premier Foods is now going to have to do both. They've announced a £10 million cost-cutting programme this financial year and next. And there were reports before this um, update came out that they were going to raise some prices by... Probably mid-single digits on some products, not across the board, but on some. Mm. Let's see if customers respond to that in uh, in a positive way by continuing to buy the products, which, well, what, is, which what, is doubtful. It's, yeah, I mean, also what's interesting, what was in their own update was they the branded sales, so of the likes of things we've just been discussing, they actually fell in the third quarter of their financial year. Um, 3.8%, but non-branded, so products they make for supermarkets that don't have a brand on, rose 11.6%. And what that really says to me is that consumers are, or have in this instance, traded down, or just preferred supermarket versions, albeit they'll be made by Premier. As a consumer, you'd never know that. Um, Dangerous game, that, supplying the same customers with uh, with white label goods as as your own branded goods and we know uh, Thornton's tried that yes it didn't work out too well for them it yet, didn't really. and there's a there's a bit in their update which to me is I think a bit worrying so the Premier Foods made 216 million mince pies last year 
But the problem with that is that some of the volume actually switched from Mr. Kipling to non-branded. And obviously non-branded are highly likely to be lower margin for premier foods. So that's not a good detail, in, in my opinion. No, no, I would tend to agree. I mean, you know, you look, there are businesses out there in the same sort of market who have coped with this, this pricing, uh, this cost inflation of, uh, of raw materials because they have the ability to either manage their pricing a bit better or, or just they've managed their cost base overall a bit better. Or, uh, you know, or- Premier, Premier Foods is... is you know, this could be a Premier Foods problem rather than a market problem. Yes, I mean, because you have to just look back a few months ago where Unilever and Tesco had a very public spat over the price of Marmite. And Unilever obviously is a much larger company than Premier Foods and it probably has a bit more um, you know, punch behind it. Funny, funny enough, the last company to have a, a public spat with Tesco about uh, the price of branded products was Premier Foods. <laughs> <laughs> that was a prescient uh, relevance then, wasn't it? Indeed, indeed. And I, I think that ultimately resulted in Tesco refusing to stock Hovis for, uh, for a while. Premier Foods lost the battle. It, it seems extraordinary to me that Marmite comes into the equation as well, because that's just basically made from slurry from the brewing process. Maybe True. that's why I like it so much. <laughs> 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 All right, enough Premier Foods. Uh, anyway, the share price is down to 46p, 41p even. 41, yeah. 41 it was, it was just under two years ago, we um, put a bit of hope in the shares at 46p, and... Um, it's been a wild ride, really, especially last year, because there was a um, potential takeover offer, which the company spurned in favour of um, this kind of tie-up with Nissin Foods, which is yeah. a Japanese business. I think there's some unhappy people that they didn't take that offer now. I think there were at the time. They were publicly unhappy on the front page of the FT type unhappy. Yeah, there were some people who um, were openly willing to, to quote be quoted um, about the fact they weren't, they weren't happy. They wanted McCormick, the US company, to, to go ahead and do the deal, but... Um, yeah, Premier Foods voted against there you it. Go. And obviously, what do you need when, when you face big cost inflation of raw materials? Scale. Mm. Yep. And deals like that bring that, that kind of scale. There you go. Absolutely. Isn't hindsight a wonderful thing? Beautiful. Um, so let's get back to good news, because uh, you've written this story on this page about dividends, and it uh, looks like we could be in for a good year on the uh, dividend front. And that's what everyone likes to hear. It is, isn't it? Yep. Um, make everyone's day a little bit better. Um, so the, the research comes from IHS Market. Um, and they're expecting um, total dividends for 2017, and that includes special payouts, to hit $92 billion, um, this year. Um, a big reason for the rise, um, up from $83.5 billion in 2016, is things like Glencore resuming its dividend increases from BHP. Oil and gas dividends obviously looking very good. And importantly, the companies which pay their dividends in dollars, there are things as HSBC's dividends will be flat on a nominal basis, but as a UK recipient, it's actually an 11% rise or something, IHS markets say, because of the now differential between the pound and the dollar. And that's assuming that stays where it is. Of course it does. Well, yeah. presumably cash flows on the increase because of uh, sterling's decline as well. Quite possibly, yeah. There are there are lots of the, the IHS market research is pretty good. It does go through all the sectors and points out some sort of key one uh, key sectors where there will be big rises, where there will be perhaps uh, small drags on things. So, arguably, some stocks to watch out for if you're an, uh, an investor. Barclays is one of the few banks that's going to be cutting its dividend um, in travel. EasyJet could find itself under a bit of pressure because it links its dividend payments to um, a certain metric of profitability, which people are expecting to fall this year. Um, we do remain bullish on EasyJet, I will say. We do have it on a buy still. It, it, it's, a, it's a long-term thesis, which I won't go into now. But um, yeah, IHS Markets Research is very good. And the gamblers, I should say. I mean, another fantastic sector for dividends. Um, GVCs coming back to paying 
ordinary dividends after having a break last year. So that's another good uh, hunting ground for income seekers. Yes, vice. Well, there's a, normally there's only about a handful of stocks, though, isn't it? That count, that count for the, um, the the lion's share of dividends, the total, yeah, I mean, total payout. Tobacco, uh, Vodafone is a huge payout. Miners um, as well. The miners Shell. now and BP and Shell. Yeah. Mm. Yeah, I mean, Shell was interesting. Um, Shell obviously we covered uh, the prospects for Shell's dividend in a, in a podcast uh, recently that Alex Newman put together. He's done a podcast this week on Golf Keystone, GKP. Um, got their chief exec in uh, to have a, have a chat. So uh, have a listen. We, there's a story in the magazine as well. We won't go into it now, but, but worth having a listen to that. Yeah, absolutely. It's and, a, great, uh, a great piece, a great interview, actually. And it's, uh, yeah, it's really good to have, um, yeah, have a sort of one-to-one thing to listen to for, for, our, for our audience. Indeed, right. some interesting feedback from, uh, from uh, Golf Keystone Petroleum shareholders uh, below the line on that piece as well. That's what you want? Yeah, yeah, venting spleen in, the, in most instances. Okay, right. Well, that covers the kind of main market news. I mean, just in, in the kind of grand scheme of things, obviously May's speech uh, this week was, was, was interesting. They were pretty well received, I'd say. It was well received, but what's kind of interesting for me is that it's, it's kind of um, been pitched as bringing a lot of um, clarity and a bit more certainty to, to the situation. And I, I agree with that mostly, but then just looking around the seven days spread, you've got Fitch, the big ratings agency, saying they're not sure actually what this means for the UK's current double uh, A rating with a negative outlook. So that suggests Fitch is a bit bearish on what Theresa May said. Um, you've got Burberry benefiting heavily from the weak pound because a lot of the tourists, um, tourist shoppers are coming to Britain to take advantage of um, you know, Sterling's uh, drop. I find that so extraordinary. You know, you're planning your holiday. You think, where are you going to go? Oh, Britain. Yeah. The pound's cheap and they've got a nice Burberry shop yeah. there. All these new... <laughs> New Yorkers do camping to come over the Atlantic to shop. There's no shops in New York. <laughs> it's bizarre. <laughs> it is bizarre. I, I find it. I, I wouldn't do it, but um, you know, Burberry cite it as a as a reason for their beneficial sort of third quarter trading update. Fine. And then IMF as well has upgraded its um, growth forecast for the UK. So all in all, it's still all a bit confused. Well, that's going to be a negative, isn't it? Given their recent track record. Well, yeah. My point is that they've had to sort of um, increase their um, you know their their vision of what UK growth will be like because so that's sort of positive Burberry's doing well from the pounds fall but Fitch is a bit bearish so mm. yes there's there's a bit of clarity from what Theresa May wants now and that's great but there's still it all, her cake and eating it isn't it her cake and eating it yes. is what, what, what it, all, it almost what sounds like nobody's got a clue well, that's kind of what I'm getting at. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, the IMF obviously wasn't listening. Uh, the economists there were obviously not listening to their boss, uh, Christine Lagarde, who said that Brexit could only be either bad or very bad. Um, anyway, she's been at Davos this week, uh, bemoaning the travails of the middle classes, the poor squeezed middle Has she got an ankle bracelet? No idea. No. Uh, oh. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, anyway, so an, an interesting week in the sort of uh, the, the political economy. Um, Absolutely. I think if you want a very good um summary not necessarily good uh, an interesting summary it's probably worth reading um jd weatherspoon's uh trading update from this week because oh, he's a big fan of the eu tim martin <laughs> loves the eu <laughs> and he loves economists too yes um, just have a look at his um yeah his 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 update is just um just enjoyable reading yeah okay i will i was like a good amusing chairman's statement they, uh, there were some corkers out there and he's he's one of them <laughs> he is a corker Okay, right, let's uh, move on to the cover feature, um, which uh, you uh, contributed this week, Mark, and it's uh, it's a good one. Yeah, well, it was a long time in the making because it's... You're um, telling me. <laughs> <laughs> I was more or less on deadline on this one. Um, 
I was just taking a look at the, the battery market, obviously, because from time to time we've we've been having a look at the uh, the rollout of electric vehicles, and we've also looked at uh, renewable energy. And um, it occurred to me that uh, from uh, a technical uh, perspective, the, the main impediment uh, to the growth of these industries or the effective rollout has been that uh, battery technology has uh, failed to keep pace, um, especially when you, when you look at the, the devices, the modern devices that uh, batteries tend to power now. And uh, the conclusion, I guess, at the, at the end of the feature as well is that we're pretty much on a cusp now I think where um, uh, technologies, a confluence of technologies and economics will make this an even more viable industry in the years to come um, so I've, I've, I've I've gone and had a look at the the existing battery technologies and also looked at the, um, the spread of uh, lithium iron, I've looked at a few investment options that we've highlighted in the magazine over the last uh, couple of years including um, Going right at source, um, Alex Newman, who we mentioned before, uh, was looking at uh, Bacchanora Minerals, a, a lithium miner back in 2015. Um, and occasionally at the IC, we, we like to highlight the old uh, picks and shovels argument, uh, whereby the, you're, you're better off investing in uh, companies that make uh, the relevant kit for um, a given industry. Okay, right, let's go back to the beginning. You mentioned that the technology is improving. Yeah, that the, the economics are making it now viable as the technology improves to start rolling out more battery technology on a much more widespread basis. Let's talk about the economics first. Oh well, it's 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 purely down to economies of scale, really. I mean, the, with electric vehicles, um, uh, the main criticisms, of course, uh, in, uh, relate to range and uh, the the amount of time that it actually takes you to recharge uh, batteries. Now, these are obviously uh, technical issues that. Uh, that companies are still are grappling with. But um, as we see uh, an increase in the number of EV um, or electric vehicles that are making their way onto motorways, um, economies of scale kick in. Um, as a result, the, uh, the power packs, the, the, the types of things that uh, Tesla are making are, are falling in price, uh, which again feeds into sort of R&D budgets, which allows companies to invest even more money um, it was odd, really, because uh, given the, the year of the oil price slump, which was midway through uh, 2014, um, the next 12 months had the highest rate of investment in electric vehicles that we've, we've ever seen. And this is with the oil price uh, virtually collapsing as well. So, so it demonstrates that there's, there's real appetite out there. Well, it's not, I mean, it's not just about the, the price of, of the alternative, which is oil. It's, a, it's a, presumably a high oil price this encourages investment in, in alternatives. So yes, it has done down through the years, but not not only in in, in battery technology, but other types of uh, green uh, green areas yeah. of the economy. So 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 the other side of this uh, this kind of the other big driver, you could argue, is uh, environmental awareness. So yes. the the big push for uh, for reducing uh, carbon emissions, uh, reducing air pollution. Well, yeah, must be playing into to, to the continued rollout of battery well, technology as well. Well, certainly, um, uh, the Communist Party in China have made this uh, a central plank of their of their of their growth policy for the economy. Uh, the difficulty in China, of course, is that the uh, uh, the regional assemblies have so much power, but um, the the quality the air quality in China's large conurbations is actually seen as um, a potential uh, structural 
inhibitor to the, the economy. I mean, it's, it's reached crisis point in many cities over there. Absolutely. I've got to say, the air quality in London's not that great either. No, no, but... Um, Especially you know, Lower Thames Street, which we have to cross every day. Well, yeah, yes. Uh, worst uh, in London. Worst in London, so I believe, yeah, that's true. Um, yes, of course, uh, a lot of um, readers will be looking at this and thinking, well, I mean, you know, uh, how far advanced is the technology given um, the dual uh, recall from Samsung last year, which... Um, Recalled uh, memories of uh, Dell's problems a, a decade earlier, um, but uh, it has to be said that uh, even lithium-ion batteries, which have been around since um, the early 1970s, are becoming more reliable. Um, the energy density is is improving, um, and I think we really are on the verge now of um, of a sea change in, in, in battery technology. You, you mentioned graphene as well, which has the potential to, to improve battery technology further still. Yeah, I mean, there, there's a number of technologies out there vying with lithium-ion, and lithium-ion uh, you know, dominates the market uh, in terms of um, uh, small devices, car batteries, uh, and so on. But there are a number of alternatives out there, and perhaps the most exciting one um, uh, relates to graphene. It was a, a material that was developed in uh, Manchester University. It has a uh, uh, unique physical properties as well. It's a single uh, layer lattice of uh, carbon ions, uh, atoms rather, um, very little uh, uh, electrical resistance. And so um, the physics backs this up, but there's, there's speculation that uh, eventually this material could be used as a superconductor. Uh, superconductors at the moment have to be um, uh, run at near absolute zero temperature, so there's a lot of energy input, but the, the feeling is that graphene could actually work as a superconductor at, uh, at room temperature as well. Um, I give an example uh, in the article as well that they say that uh, you could actually, if this was used as a, in a unit with a mobile phone, uh, you could actually power a mobile phone just by uh, the kinetic energy of, of you moving with the battery in your pocket. Amazing. So, yeah. Amazing. Well, that, I mean, that's renewable as it comes. Well, exactly, exactly. And um, there's a number of... There was a, an Australian um, a startup last year, a listed one, that uh, had uh, used graphene in, a, in a, a battery unit there, but they've had some, uh, they've had some technical problems since then. I mean, it was, it was hyped out of this world when it first came out. But... Um, it's one area I think we're going to see some real movement over over the next decade. I mean, I guess that's going to be the difficulty for investors looking at uh, playing the uh, the battery technology theme is that you will see a number of startups, uh, you will see companies coming to aim, promising to to, to you know revolutionary uh, performance from, yeah. from whatever products they're they're developing. It's Many awesome. of these are going to fail. Well, exactly, and and, and the, the weird the weird part about it, it's a mature market in any way. I mean, the technology's been around for 150, 200 years in a sense. I mean, your your car battery or the the likelihood that the the battery you've got in your car at the moment is based upon 150 year old technology. It really hasn't moved on at the same rate as uh, as other forms. So, so, I mean, you can argue though in that in that case, why not just go for the biggest? Why not just buy Tesla? Well, yes. Well, I mean, the, the the point is everyone is buying Tesla. You look at the ratings as well, and they're sort of analogous to uh, Apple when um, when it was reborn, if you like. And uh, people were saying all throughout uh, Apple's growth as well that these these ratings aren't sustainable. There's no, there's no way that, that the growth could match um, the Ford earnings ratings. But uh, Apple's proved us all wrong, and. Um, investors in Tesla will be hoping for the same thing as well. I mean, there is a mature market out there. You could look at companies like uh, LG Chem and uh, and Panasonic, who are large producers of uh, uh, lithium-ion batteries, but also uh, conventional battery uh, technology as well. 
Uh, but of course, when you invest in a mature market, you, your returns are going to be obviously limited. Um, there are there, there are relatively few options out there, and, and I guess if um, Elon Musk uh, is that successful, I mean, it could restrict actually producers of uh, of uh, power packs for cars as well, because I mean, there's there's high barriers to entry. I mean, there's there's no shortage of tech out there. There's no shortage of IP. But if you actually want to um, uh, try and compete uh, with these scale operators, it's, it's very, very difficult. So, so why not supply them? Um, I think you talk about in your piece back in Aura Minerals, which is indeed supplying uh, yeah, that, lithium to Tesla. That, I mean, that, that looks interesting. Yeah, that was a great insight by Alex. I mean, uh, like any other junior miner at the moment, they've, they've had a few um, uh, issues. I mean, you dig a hole in the ground and you just hope there's no water ingress. That's the story of mining. But, I mean, they're, they're heading along the road. They've got a, a tied-in agreement uh, with uh, Tesla as well. They're one of, I mean, I think it might be three, three other miners have got these tied-in agreements. So once they're up and running, uh, you know, there will be no shortage of demand. And in fact, there was a, a report in the, the press today about a potential project down in Cornwall where they're uh, thinking of extra- extracting lithium from uh, underground uh, water supply there. So, I mean, there is, there'll be no shortage of demand, um, you know, once this Tesla gets on the road. I mean, his plateau rate is that he's, he's trying to build enough batteries uh, to service uh, half a million cars, but when they get onto the the full rate for the uh, the giga uh, the gigafactory in Nevada, that should uh, supply up to one point five million cars per annum. Okay, I mean we, we talked a lot about cars. What we haven't really talked about is how battery technology can find its way to the home. Also, something that Tesla's working on with the uh, power wall. The power walls, yes. In fact, there's power wall two, which has just uh, come out to the on, onto the market at the moment. Which uh, again. It, 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 the, the, the technology here, the, the problem with renewable technology, as we all know, principally uh, with uh, wind-powered and solar generation, is that if the wind doesn't blow or if you're at night time, you're, you're not going to be able to um, sort of meet demand. You know, um, uh, The idea, of course, is that you get uh, large-scale industrial batteries or, or batteries for the home that allow you to store up that energy when the sun is shining uh, or when the wind is blowing, and then it can be uh, used at periods of high demand. Now, this is quite an easy equation on the face of it, but there are technological tra- uh, challenges there. Elon Musk thinks eventually that he'll be selling more of these um, power walls um, uh, than, than he will uh, Tesla Motors. So Makes a lot of sense. Yeah. Um, there's another little company uh, that you've had your eye on for a while that's, that's in a similar field it's 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 not car battery technology it's it's no, grid battery it's, technology it's grid, yeah it's grid and off grid uh, um technology red t energy i mean uh, a, a lot of our readers will be uh, familiar with the, the company because it's been attracting an awful lot of comments on investor uh, uh, forums um, well, always a worrying sign <laughs> well it is yes i mean it's, it's not necessarily positive that's for sure uh, but actually, what they what they seek to do is is doing this on a larger scale. So um, they've they've got three of their large units in operation at the moment. One on a remote Hebridean island, and they've got two in areas of Africa, I believe, that are that have no access to uh, electric grid. But of course, it, it acts almost like a um, a, a substation in, in a sense. Um, the main advantage that we understand in terms of the red uh, tea energy technology is its chemical uh, composition, which makes it far more uh, stable uh, than uh, alternatives on the market, and also uh, cheaper, substantially cheaper uh, than anything that's uh, on offer from rivals. 
uh, including the main uh, the market leader in this area, which is uh, a German company, Gildermeister Energy Solutions. Um, so it's a company that we're really going to be keeping an eye on. Uh, we were actually going to speak to the chief executive today, but he uh, rang off sick, unfortunately. Never mind. We can speak to him in the future. Um, look forward to hearing that. Okay. Well, thank, thank you very much. It's a fascinating feature. I mean, it really is. Uh, I think I think this is. Uh, you're right to have identified this as, yeah, a, as a, a big trend to, I, to watch out for. I think. I think the the, the point is here. It's it's certainly. It's, I'm, I'm sure our readers are aware of this anyway, but it's certainly an area that they they must be looking at because it's it's one of the real growth areas in the in the economy at the moment, or potential growth areas in the economy at the moment. Yeah. Well, maybe plug it into the industrial strategy. Indeed. There you go. Right. Okay. Wonderful. Well, I think that pretty much wraps up uh, what we want to talk about today. There's plenty more in the magazine, even though we haven't yet got into the meat of results season yet, which comes in a month. Yeah. Less, less than a month. Yeah, a few weeks' time. Always slightly terrifying. We've still got plenty in the magazine. Um, Megan Boxall, as well as writing about Pearson, uh, developing a cynical streak, which belies her age. <laughs> yes, thank you, Robbo. <laughs> She's written about AIM companies this week, and... Uh, what she describes as, as boring AIM companies, uh, which perhaps isn't always the reputation that AIM uh, has. So, uh, safer bets on AIM in 2017. Uh, Algie Hall's stock screen looks at his have-it-all screen. And uh, funny enough, it's very house-builder-centric, this one. Have house-builders really got it all? Who knows? Um, plenty in the personal finance and fun section, which they will no doubt talk about on their podcast tomorrow. All the usual tips, all the usual comments from Simon and Chris and Bearball and Nicole. Uh, and uh, we're reintroducing a column that you may remember, No Free Lunch, which will now be written by Paul Jackson, who you uh, will have seen writing for the magazine for a while. He's now going to be writing this monthly about all aspects of management, pay, and governance and reporting and everything that companies do wrong that we like to moan about. Um, he's done a, a really interesting piece on uh, on Rent-A-Kill and how that company uh, almost dis- disappeared off the face of the earth uh, and was kind of brought back to life by some very highly paid or potentially highly paid executives and how there's a lesson to be learnt there around executive pay. If you enjoy listening to this podcast, we'll head over to iTunes and give us a, a rating, a sign of your appreciation. And obviously, there's a lot more of our podcasts on there, various interviews, personal finance podcasts, and plenty more will be coming throughout the course of the year. Anyway, thank you all for listening. Thank you, Bradley, and thank you, Mark. Pick up the magazine in all good news agents, recharge your portfolio, how to invest in the rebirth of battery technology, or get online and subscribe. And uh, we'll be back again next week. See you later. <laughs>